Hi everyone, welcome back to Hitchcock University where you learn filmmaking from the masters. My name is Taylor Bickle and today we're going to do something a little bit different for a few reasons. Um, we're going to go back to our second semester with Marty Scorsese and we're going to talk about The Irishman because when that season came out The Irishman wasn't finished yet, didn't come out for another couple of years. I think there's a lot of good stuff to talk about with The Irishman. But more importantly, um, I wanted to have something for you guys by the first, you know, by the new year, by the by the start of 2021. Um, there's there's a lot of a lot as everyone knows a lot that happened in 2020, and there's a lot of things that happened that particularly made getting this podcast out difficult. I'll run through those here for you guys so you guys can kind of understand what happened. Um, one is I made a movie this year. Um, my roommates and I decided to make a short film while we were in quarantine. Um, one, it's, a, it's a film called Overview. It's a sci-fi film, and it's something that I'm hoping to share with everyone very, very soon. Um, we will be submitting it to Tribeca, and my understanding of the rules on the Tribeca Film Festival is that they don't want it. They don't want anything to have shown anywhere else before then. So if we get into Tribeca, it could be June by the time... Um, you guys get a chance to see it. If we don't get into Tribeca, um, then my roommates and I should have a plan where hopefully by April or, or May it can be for public consumption. But um, all of that work really cut into the research time that I would normally have set aside for this show. Um, and maybe I should have done stuff earlier, but the, the idea came to us fairly early in quarantine and it took us a while to get all the pre-production and all the, all the production done now we're in post-production. And so it just kind of just didn't really come together like I hoped it would have. On top of that, like so many others, this year was difficult financially for me. Um, and I would need to make a number of purchases in order to to do the next semester of Hitchcock University up to the standard that I've set for myself, which honestly is not exactly that high, but it does mean that I don't have far to fall. And look, this podcast is what it is already, and I don't really want it to be any worse than it is. Um, so if I can't do the research up to the standards that I've been doing it, I don't understand how I could possibly put something out for you guys to listen to which means that I don't really know when I'm going to get back to producing this podcast. Um, however, I want you guys to know that I am looking at doing next semester on Spike Lee. I know what you heard before just a few months ago was me saying that I was thinking of Spielberg and Lucas. The thing is, is I record all my episodes kind of in one shot and then slowly release them out over the course of the year. So when I said that, that was back in early 2020 before the United States and a good chunk of the world kind of erupted over the death of George Floyd and so many others. So moving forward, um, I'm going to make a concerted effort to have to, to, to do this show on not so many white men. Um, today's class session notwithstanding, this is just kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm honestly putting together something that I think is going to be interesting and informative and, and useful for a lot of us, but I'm using materials that I already have at my disposal. Um, so this isn't, you know, I, I, I can't pivot as hard as I'd like to, um, unfortunately. So, um, last, last bit of, of news before we kind of get into this, um, uh, some of you may have noticed that there was a change in November uh, in what was available on the feed. And then there might have been some weirdness going on and then kind of everything might have repopulated. Um, 
I move the podcast feed from one place to another um, where I, I, I hope it will be very happy. Um, and additionally, we're now available on Pandora and Spotify. Um, if those are more convenient places for you to listen, you can go there. Um, I really want to thank everyone who kind of stuck with us during that move. And I, I'd especially like to thank anyone we might have picked up along the way. We're very happy to have you. So without further ado, let's get into Marty Scorsese's The Irishman from 2019. As you may remember in the past, there's a number of projects that were not Marty's idea. They were uh, projects that uh, Bob De Niro came to Marty with. And specifically in this case, he came to Marty with the book, So I Heard You Paint Houses. Um, and as Bob described the character of Frank Sheeran, who is the... Well, it's it's his autobiography written with a with a ghostwriter, not even a ghostwriter, another writer, uh, Charles Brandt, I believe. Um, and so the book's about Frank Sheeran, and as Bob described the character Frank Sheeran, um, Bob became very emotional, and Marty knew then and there that if Bob was going to get that emotional about a character that he was reading from a book, that this was a movie that they needed to make. So. They got the script together, they, they adapted it from the novel, and they held a reading with most of the cast that actually ended up in the film. And the reading was very moving for everyone, and they immediately knew that they had something then and there. But Marty was already scheduled to go off and make Silence, which was Marty's project. That was what he wanted to do. So he goes off and makes Silence with the idea that when he comes back, they're going to make this. Um, Marty said this about... The Irishman. He said, ultimately, we wanted to make a movie. Bob felt this too, but we didn't say it very much. No need to say it. It was happening around us in our personal lives too. Age. The contemplative nature of it. Something where there's an accumulation of detail, banal details of everyday life that ultimately add up to a life that you have to leave. And Bob sensed that immediately and he played everything from that perspective. Marty, Marty, in his typical fashion, doesn't always make for a great quote, um, as he sort of meandered through that. But the and 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 I sensed this when I saw the film, and so I was very, I was very pleased to hear that Marty and Bob came at it from the same angle. But the idea is that this is a film about the totality of a life. It's a film almost about life itself, and that is what influenced how Marty made the film. In fact, for a long time, Bob and Marty had been thinking about doing a kind of career of life or a career as life movie. Um, something like Vincenti Minnelli's, um, is it Vincenti? Vincent? I always hear Vincent, but he has the, anyway. Um, his film, The Bad and the Beautiful, starring Kirk Douglas. Um, you know, they, they'd been kind of looking at doing this kind of like retrospective on a life kind of movie for a long time. So for this project to come to them made a lot of sense. They were already on this track. And Marty says, at our ages, to deal with this story and to deal with this world, it seemed to fit perfectly with the characters. He, he says in another interview, he says, it's a reflective film. You know, it's got the action, it's got the scale. Yet it should all go on the rhythm of, in a sense, the way we think now, the way we look back on time. So that idea of trying to make a movie about a life influenced everything, right up, I mean, right up front with the casting. 
Um, Marty said, by the time we settled on this project, we turned into our 70s. I mean, we have another kind of per perception of life, particularly of that world, of that milieu in which I've dabbled in a number of times from Mean Streets to Goodfellas to Casino. So we're kind of associated with that. And in playing out this picture, he didn't say this, but the implication is it became a very internal, very intimate film. Um, so out of that casting, I mean, I mean, if, if, if Marty and Bob are going to return to this genre, who else do you get than Joe Pesci, right? And Joe, Joe had been uh, retired for years now, but it was Bob and Marty's relationship, along with the fact that he was going to be able to play something a little bit different, that, that was able to bring Joe back out of retirement and put him into this movie where he belongs, right up with them, you know, in this retrospective of a film. Uh, that also meant bringing in Harvey Keitel. Um, in fact, there's a there's a POV shot where Bob and Joe are looking over this big party toward the end of the film, and they see Al have an interaction with Harvey. Uh, sorry, they see Al Pacino have an interaction with Harvey Keitel, and Marty did that specifically because those two actors had never been in the same frame together. You know, and so it was it, it was this chance for Marty to do something that nobody else had been able to do, to bring these two actors who have been in and around his life, in and around this milieu, you know, so many times before, but had never been there on the, on the screen together. Which brings us to Al Pacino. See, Marty and Al had been tried and had tried to work together before, but they just had never been able to get the right project to come together at the right time. In fact, Marty first saw Al Pacino on Broadway in a play called Rats that I believe Al directed. Um, see, Francis Ford Coppola was over at Marty's parents' house having dinner with him and Mar with, with them and Marty and was telling them about casting The Godfather. And, and I guess that night said, no, I just got to show you this guy. And so they went to go see this play and see Al Pacino. And ever since then, Marty had been trying to figure out how to work with Al, but it just hadn't quite worked. I mean, this film had... This film has actors from Raging Bull, from Goodfellas, from Casino, from everywhere. Character actors, people that don't, you know, you might not immediately recognize, but you're like, wow, that guy looks really familiar. They are. You've seen them in something else before, and you've probably seen them in another Martin Scorsese movie. And of course, the, of course, you know, the guy that brought the project to him in the first place, Bob De Niro, he's got to be in this movie. But that brings brings a problem that needs to be solved, Right. Bob De Niro, Joe Pesci, and Al Pacino, they're all in their 70s. This is a movie that takes place over 30, 40, 50 years and covers a life. And so, in fact, actually, I think it takes up 60 years for the, for the, for the Bob De Niro character, for Frank Sheeran. Well, these guys are in their 70s. How can they play the young versions of themselves? Well, when they were in pre-production, they couldn't. And that meant that for for Marty, that just didn't make sense because that means that he was going to have to bring in you know a younger actor to replace Bob De Niro and play young young Bob De Niro, and he was going to have to explain to him how to be Bob De Niro, and he was going to have to you know try to try to cram into this this thirty year old kid's you know this this you know this thirty year old guy um, you know this totality of a life and all of this that's known of from when you are seventy and this looking back on it with that knowledge and. That just wasn't going to be possible. Not to mention, if they bring in a younger actor, that means he only gets to make half the film with Bob De Niro. Well, at that point, for Marty, what's why why even bother? So, 
So through some conversations with ILM, especially while Marty's making silence, they start working out how to digitally de-age these actors. And I know it was kind of a controversial choice, but I think when you see it from Marty's perspective, it makes sense. But the thing, so, you know, maybe you've seen some digitally de-aged stuff before, some behind the scenes, and, and these guys have like tennis balls on their face, or like golf balls, or um, ping pong balls on their faces, right? Well, Marty didn't want them acting with that. He's like, that's going to get in the way. You know, this is an intimate, personal movie. We don't, you know, that's not what we want. So ILM went away and tried to figure out how to do this. And they figured out how to do it without all that. There's just a couple of markers on the clothes that they're using. And then they would use, they, they used a special makeup that would radiate out infrared light. And that, and that was the tracking markers on their faces. And they would, they, they, they flanked the two, cam the, they flanked each camera with two other cameras that were just there reading the infrared light. And that's how they did it. And what that meant was that, um, was that they wouldn't have to have any of these markers. And in fact, they showed Marty a test at ILM. They, they pulled the scene out of, of Goodfellas and did it with, with Bob. And as they're doing it, they hear this laughter from the monitor and they look around and they're like, what, what is going on? And, and Marty's just back there laughing to himself. And he's like, it's just like it was 30 years ago, you know, um, which I don't know if it was quite that good. But, you know, I mean, they did a really good job. But what this meant was that every single camera rig had three cameras on it which was incredibly distracting for the actors because Marty was always trying to shoot with a minimum of two cameras for every dialogue scene, if not three or even four. So in almost every scene, there's six to nine cameras all in set, you know, all on the set, and that really slows everything down because you have to have a pretty robust camera crew at that point to manage all of this. And that made for, for what Marty refers to as a slightly more stately pace of production, more people on crew. But the fact that we're doing something special made it very exciting and everybody was with it. And I actually think in a strange way, that sort of reflects the themes of the movies, right? So in a weird way, that kind of all created a sort of um, um, synergy, which I thought was nice. And the reason they went with the infrared, with the IR, is because Rodrigo Prieto, uh, Marty's director of photography, who's been working with him ever since Wolf of Wall Street, um, told ILM, however you do this, I just need to be able to light this like any other movie. I don't want, I, I need to be able to shoot it and light it almost like any other movie. I don't want Marty to, to think that, because, that, that, that he's a you know, subject to the technology. This should not be any more limiting than any other film. And on top of that, Rodrigo Prieto really spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to get that cinematography to reflect the passage of time that's so crucial to this film, to reflect the passage of a life. So since the movie goes back and forth between different eras, different decades, um, what he did was he, he tried to give every era its own look and feel the hope being that it would kind of create the feeling of a memory where every era would have kind of these 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 feelings that would be associated with them that would be entirely dependent on how it looks and feels so for example um in the 50s he wanted everything to look like the kodachrome 
film stocks, which were very popular in, in, in stills photography then. And then in, in the 60s and part of the 70s, then he went to the ektachrome, which was you know, another generation later of, of stills um, film emulsions, film stocks. And then as you get on in the 70s, he went to just a partial, um, what's referred to as a bleach bypass or a skip bleach or an ENR process. Um, this was, I'm going to get a little technical here because I think this stuff is fascinating. Um, so when color film stocks are developed, they are bleached. And that bleach strips it of any silver that's still on the film stock that wasn't developed, um, because it's the silver halide crystals that, that 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 capture light, and that's what ends up really creating the image. Right? And that's a little oversimplified, but but that's that's the gist. And so if you skip the bleach process, you leave those silver crystals on, and what that does is it creates a reduction in con in contrast and a reduction. In in saturation, so the colors become a little bit more muted, and the the you know the the difference between light and dark isn't as strong, and everything kind of takes a grayish tone, and and this you know, the 70s part part of this story and after is all it's all reflecting kind of this end of an era, this end of a friendship, this end of a. Um, almost the end of a life even though De Niro's character continues to go on living um, and so and so he he starts to introduce this look in the 70s um, and as the 70s go on it gets stronger and stronger and stronger until after the final you know the big final killing in the movie then it goes full bleach bypass and 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 the look is completely there and it's 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 not going away. And while we're on, on the subject of the look of the film, the feel of the film, um, Marty was very specific about, about this being as accurate as possible. The wardrobe specifically, but, but a lot of other things. Um, Marty told his, uh, according to Bob Shaw, who was the production designer, Marty told him, this film should feel like nothing. Well, not nothing, you know, it, it should feel like the era, but it should feel, he, he didn't want the production design to take on a style. He wanted it to feel real, feel like everyday life. That was how Bob Shaw interpreted what Marty told him. Um, Marty said, um, we try to cut away the unnecessary. Just give me the essentials of this place. When you get the essentials, let's make sure it's weathered, make sure it's lived in, make sure that you can see three to four to five coats of paint on the wall. Um, in fact, uh, there's, there's an Italian restaurant that, that is fairly pro takes a fairly prominent place in the story, especially in the early, in the earliest, um, you know, like in the first third um, of the film. Um, Marty didn't want to build the Italian restaurant. Um, he's afraid they were never going to be able to get the authenticity, the, the, the ability, as he said, to smell the sauce in the floorboards. But Bob Jean and his team just kept, just kept pushing and kept going at it, and, 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 and they, you know, they built the set, and the set looked good, and, and then they just kept aging it and aging it and aging it. And, you know, stuff stuff that, that, that Bob Shaw is pretty sure you never see on camera, but just, you know, just spraying 
this stuff that looks like dust all over everything and just just aging and aging and aging and aging until finally they got there and when marty stepped on the set for the first time he said wow this is exactly this was this is the place this is right this is exactly how it should be you know for all i know he may have reached down to try to smell the sauce on the floorboards and they might have they might have tried to put it there i don't know um there's a there's there's a scene um where bobby cannavale's character um picks up a picks up a whole telephone and takes it over to somebody i i, I think joe pesci's character and hands it to him and when bobby cannavale grabbed it he could not believe how heavy it was and when he went to marty he said what 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 is with this phone why is it so heavy and marty hadn't thought about it he's like yeah that's right phones used to be heavy and that's what they had done. They, they had gotten one of the real phones from the era you know and bobby's like why didn't you just you know get a prop phone a phone that looks like this and marty's like why would i do that you know <laughs> everything had to be real um there's a there's scenes later in the film um at a howard johnson's uh motel howard johnson's doesn't exist anymore um not 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 like that you know you know i not i yes the brand name howard johnson still exists but there was a look a feel there there was a kind of a cookie cutter design of a howard johnson's that just does not exist anymore and they're impossible to find and the production team kept coming back to marty and saying does it have to be a howard johnson's can it be anything and he's like no it has to be a howard johnson's and finally they were able to track down an old howard johnson's that had come under new management and was no longer a howard johnson's anymore but it still had the same setup and so they were able to come in there and revitalize it to to an approximation of what it would have been at the time and 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 make it a howard johnson's once again and the final the final bit of trivia here that i i, I think is just so great is and this goes back to the totality of a life and looking back on the life and 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 the meta ness that 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 Marty and Bob included in this by casting guys like Joe and and um, and 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 returning once again to this milieu with which they are so you know you know for which they're so well known. Um, there's a scene in a diner, and they showed Marty um, scout photos of all these different diners that they'd gone to. And and every time Marty looked at me, he said, yeah, it's really close, but I can't do this shot, or you know, this is gonna be too hard, and you know, and no, that doesn't work, that's not it, that's not right, that's, no, that's not it either. It's close, but it's not quite there, you know. And finally Marty said, um, you know, there was a diner we used for Goodfellas. And the production design team looked at him and said, Marty, not only does that diner still exist but they've called but they've now renamed it the goodfellas diner so if that's where you want to shoot then let's shoot there you know and that was that was what they did that so the goodfellas diner is in this movie you know where where it belongs you know in another martin scorsese movie so that's all i have um for the irishman um i really want to thank you all for listening um and for joining us for this uh, for this uh, sort of uh, bonus class session from Marty Scorsese, and um, and I 
I really hope that uh, that sometime in 2021 um, I'm able to get back on track and get you guys um, all the information from Spike Lee that I can find, that I can dig up. Um, I can't make any promises. Um, I think I also made the announcement at the end of the Billy Wilder uh, semester that we were going to move to doing once a month. Um, I still plan to do that. Um, you know, um, we may give you a few extra ones if, um, we'll see. I, I, I really don't know what this next semester is going to look like for us. Um, there's a lot of, lot of unknowns right now. Um, but I really wanted to have something for you guys so that I could kind of give you guys all that news and, and all that sort of stuff. And, and, and still give you something good to listen to. Um, obviously, um, you can follow us uh, for any other information that might come out um, on um, on our social media. Um, there's there's a Facebook page Hitchcock University. Uh, there's the Hitch underscore U is the letter U is in University uh, for Twitter. And I think for Instagram as well. It's been a while since I've looked at those, honestly. Um, this movie's been sort of all-consuming. Um, and and you can find the podcast anywhere you, you catch podcasts, whether it's uh, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, now Pandora as well. Um, thank you once again for listening to Hitchcock University, where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Um, and uh, I don't know when you'll hear from me next, but um, I hope it's soon. Thanks again.